Ray's community, thank you for joining us today on the Ray's podcast for this special COVID-19 edition. No one has been through what we're going through right now, and we don't have all the answers. But we're committed to learning from each other and sharing best practices for remote fundraising, working from home, and navigating this uncertainty. We're asking advancement leaders to share what they're doing and offer a real-time window into how they're pivoting their strategies in today's environment. I hope you find this helpful. Here we go. I want to start by by fessing up. The uh, my fellow presenters were were giving me a hard time about my virtual background. Apparently, that was in last week, but it is out this week. But I'm stuck with mine because uh, our colleague Mike, who is in marketing, uh, sent me a massive virtual background. So this is I, I've got a green screen now. I have no choice but to use virtual backgrounds, and I just want everyone to understand. Uh, that um, it is taking up valuable real estate here in Evertrue Global Headquarters in my bedroom, and uh, we're, we're going to stick with it. So we did, uh, anytime we get a group of uh, 100 plus advancement professionals uh, on a conversation like this, we love uh, doing some polls just to kind of take a pulse check of what's going on. And there are three different topics. We're fortunate to have um, uh, colleagues from UVA who I'll introduce shortly that span the advancement spectrum from alumni engagement to fundraising to operations uh, and data management. And, um, and so we'll have some questions that hopefully touch on each of those themes. Mike, can you kick off the poll? The first thing we wanted to know is about virtual alumni events. Are they a stopgap, flash in the pan, temporary solution that we will probably not be talking about in two years? Or is this just a part of our permanent strategy going forward? Uh, would love the poll response, and also uh, it, in the chat, if anybody has had an, a, a virtual alumni event that you were just super proud of, please share just a quick one-liner of what it was. Everybody's trying to figure out uh, the right formula here, including Evertrue, by the way. Uh, and so we would just love to know uh, any, any specific examples. Mike, what's the survey say? Yeah, survey says uh, really overwhelming response and 80% of folks let me share those results. 80% of those surveyed said it's part of the permanent strategy going forward. Only 20% saying it's a temporary solution. I think by the end of the hour, probably going to win over that one in five number. It's going to be 100% on, uh, on the side of uh, virtual events are here to stay, even though they're a little, little crazy. Um, I see somebody posting about a virtual 5K. I actually ran one for Ithaca. I ran very slowly, but it was a lot of fun. Love that. Um... Okay, so why don't I just quickly ask our panelists, though, while we have them, take this as a moment to, to introduce uh, Cindy, Julie, and Jen. Cindy Frederick, why don't we start with you? Uh, just on that last question, virtual events here to stay? They are here to stay. Uh, anything, uh, well, we'll get into some of your specific examples, <laughs> but uh, uh, here to stay. Okay, call center. So this has been a hot topic. Very interested to get the survey results. Not everybody here probably has a traditional phone-a-thon, call center, telefund, but uh, if you had to grade your current uh, uh, operations being fully operational, scaled back, or shut down, we've heard um, mixed reviews here. Very curious to get uh, the survey responses here. We'll give it a bit longer, Mike. Uh, so, you know, thank your student call center. We have heard some creative kind of alternative approaches that are emerging, and we'll um, hope to showcase at least one of those today as well. 
Yeah, so uh, give everybody five more seconds or so to get their vote in. And let's share. It looks like, man, scaled back, shut down, 1% fully operational. Okay, so if your call center is fully operational, can you pop in the chat, let us know where you're calling it from? I think that would uh, be really valuable to know. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think this is um, not surprising, but unfortunate on a couple fronts. One, uh, there has been, I think, more uh, prominent marketing of very student-specific needs more so than ever at a time when we don't necessarily have the student voice being able to connect directly with donors. So not a surprise, uh, but, but sad to see. Uh, thank you all for sharing. Let's go to the, the last one. Um, really curious. I don't know how many major gift officers we have uh, on the poll today. So you got to answer on behalf of yourself. For everybody else, this is an opportunity to judge your major gift officers, which I know people love to do. So our <laughs> development officers are A, embracing virtual visits, or B, struggling to adapt. No right or wrong answer, um, but, but I was going to have an option C, both, but I thought that would let people off easy. So I really want to see what the response is here. Yeah, so I'll keep the poll open just for another couple seconds. Um, it's really fun for me to watch this. I wish you all could see these numbers changing in real time, but it looks like, um, I'm gonna share the results here, uh, about two thirds are embracing virtual visits with still a third, a little more than a third struggling to adapt. I mean, we're five, six weeks into this new normal. I mean, it's, there's a lot of learning going on here. Very cool. Um, so, Without further ado, I want to introduce our panelists. Um, I'm going to, uh, I guess I'll just go left to right. We've got Jen Andrasco, who's the president and CEO uh, at the UVA Alumni Association. Hi, Jen. Hi, Brent. Thanks so much for having me today. It's great to be with you. Can I ask, at least on the, the first point, the, the virtual event, uh, your view of that going forward? Were you in agreement with our response? Absolutely. Yep. Excellent. Um, we'll talk more about the Alumni Association and, and Central Advancement as well. Uh, Julie Featherstone, who's the AVP for Advancement Operations. Hello. Julie is taking time uh, off of her vacation, which, as we discussed, uh, looks more like any other day than ever before. So it is a staycation, but still time uh, to, to join us today. Hello, Julie. Hi. Thanks and for having me. Absolutely. And then Cindy Frederick as well, who's the AVP of Alumni uh, Parent Engagement and Annual Giving. Hello, Cindy. Hello. Thanks for having me. So what we wanted to do today, and, and I guess, why don't we let uh, you give your quick overview. Uh, we can start, Cindy, with you around uh, just kind of what is UVA advancement. And I am going to tee you up and, and um, if, if UVA is one uh, when people describe UVA to me, and as we've been able to work with UVA, um, you absolutely have developed some very strong centralized strategies. But if there's a word that describes UVA, it is decentralized. I feel like you're, you're one of the universities that's almost been doing remote advancement from the beginning of time, but maybe I'm wrong. So I'll just lay that up as, as some fodder for your overview of, of UVA advancement. Yeah, I think, uh, I think Brent, you're exactly right. So the University of Virginia's advancement team is our central operation. 
Uh, and we have gift planning, development, communications, our health system is part of UVA Central Advancement. And then my colleague, Julie Featherstone, oversees our advancement operations. And so as a central unit, we have about 250 employees that work for us. But I think you're exactly right on the uh, decentralization. We have many schools and foundations that we work collaboratively with, uh, very collaborative, but we take a, a lead on that center service. And then I oversee the Alumni and Parent Engagement Office, which includes our global networks that uh, do all the regional programming for admissions, students, um, volunteer community service, networking, athletics, along with lifetime learning and travel. And then I oversee our central annual giving. So many of our units and schools have uh, independent annual giving operations. Uh, and I oversee uh, many different departments as well as the central annual giving operations, including the phonathon. So I guess what I would say is that for the um, attendees who don't work at a large university like UVA, that's okay because there are these small pockets throughout UVA uh, of, of fairly independent but you know integrated teams that look probably more like a small college advancement organization where they really have uh, kind of uh, complete units um, all feeding in uh, to central for some of the services and data management that you talked about. Absolutely. Great. Um, any other comments Julie that that you want to share around the uh, the operations side from a central perspective? I think Cindy covered it very well. I mean, it is it is an interesting structure. There are 18 uh, separate uh, fundraising foundations, as you said, many fundraising shops. And our goal is we are one UVA in the end. From our constituent standpoint, when they see UVA, they don't understand that complexity. Um, I think that we have done a really great job of balancing that proud tradition of the um, affiliate foundations and the central um, advancement operation and, and that our approach is truly a one UVA approach. Absolutely. And then uh, Jen, we would love kind of your overview on the UVA Alumni Association. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Brent. So as Julie and Cindy mentioned, um, we are this very disparate sort of group and, and to your point, it, um, this, there's a long history behind it. Uh, the Alumni Association has existed for 182 years. And it's, I think it's not surprising given that we were founded by Thomas Jefferson, who was a state's right advocate, um, that we should have a really federated system at the University of Virginia, all pulling together for a common goal and objective, but very much um, working uh, for uh, you know, individual schools and units or missions. The Alumni Association was started back actually even before the university had a president um, when alumni answered the call to service to support the institution back when it was facing, facing some pretty treacherous financial insolvency. And because we are a self-governed um, independent 501c3, we have this really privileged position of being able to uh, represent the independent voice and perspective of alumni back to the university, which is particularly important at a public institution where you have a governing board that is politically appointed. Uh, so you, the, having an independent alumni association ensures that independent voice of alumni can be shared through our governing board um, here at the Alumni Association. We have a 36 member board of managers that oversees the association. Here at the association, we have 85 
uh, employees. And like Cindy, we also have the an, an engagement mission and we have a pretty discreet um, lanes that Cindy's team and our team operate in, but we work really collaboratively across those uh, lanes as well. We do all of our um, alumni engagement around reunions, both affinity and class-based reunions. We also lead a number of young alumni programs, including our Young Alumni Council and our post-grad trustees programs, which are really the, the opening of the funnel to get our alums engaged. Um, additionally, we do all of the career services offerings. So we have a very robust alumni career services program and that sits here at the association. And uh, we also serve all of the affinity based uh, groups, alumni and student affinity groups. And then we do this one other sort of unique thing that's probably not terribly relevant to folks on the call here, but I'll just mention it because it's a, it's a big part of our operation. And we, that is we run something called the UVA fund, which provides financial and endowment services to other foundations on the grounds. Um, and it's a back office support and that's a center of excellence for us here at the association. Um, we do also have a development shop internally to the alumni association and that supports broadly, it supports development efforts that the university cannot do for itself. So for example, we house the Ridley Scholars Program, which is merit-based um, scholarships for recruiting the best and brightest African-American talent. And those are held here because the university cannot hold them as a public institution. So that's just one example. Thank you for the overview. And I, I think uh, we were uh, commenting in advance, um, Mike, we can go past that slide. Uh, we're, we're ever true and you know we are fortunate to work with several hundred uh, leading advancement organizations and it offers us a neat window into how everybody's navigating this and we're grateful for how willing everybody is to share uh, virtually at a time when there aren't um, offline events that we used to go to. I mean, I've joked that most of you probably went to one or two case conferences a year and I went to somewhere between 13 and 15. So it's been a really different spring um, for me, just as it has been for any of you who might have been planning reunions, commencement activities, et cetera. We were, we were commenting that if we were to rename this webinar uh, or this conversation, we might say something along the lines of reopening the advancement economy. And, and when do we open the advancement economy? How do we do that? We've already had some questions coming in that I think speak to that theme. What is UVA's decision on the annual appeal direct mail campaign, fundraising galas, what are we doing with gift officer metrics? So there's just this theme of how do we reopen the advancement economy? And so uh, without diving into those specific questions just yet, I wanted to kick it to Cindy first. And when we were preparing for this, you uh, did a nice job of summarizing, uh, especially in, in UVA's context where you had to think both locally and globally. And I'd be curious to know if you'd be willing to, to sort of share that. The, the one other, uh, comment I, I meant to make is that just yesterday, um, Snapchat, uh, Snap Inc. Uh, announced that their daily active usage is up 20%. Twitter is up 30%. Zoom has gone from 10 million uh, active users in December to over 200 million active users, including a four-year-old and two six-year-olds downstairs uh, at my house. And so uh, we have seen this massive shift overnight to digital engagement which has supported both longstanding social media platforms, but also companies like Zoom. And so, you know, Cindy, tell us about your view on shifting digitally, locally, and globally. 
Yeah, I think one of the things that we did in the very beginning is that our mission was really not going to change. And so all of our decisions really were mission critical. How do we connect our alumni, parents and friends to each other back to the institution and their local communities? And I think what we wanted to do was to create diversity of programming, looking at this as a great opportunity uh, to go digital. And we are very active in our in-person events and sad to say now, uh, last year we only did eight virtual events in our office and we do 1300 events a year. And so to have only eight, we didn't have a lot of experience, um, but we knew exactly, you know, we had our first digital event on the Wednesday after we all went remote working. And we had a brand new program. We have um, a lot of partnerships with faculty members who actually came out to us and said, how can we help? And so one of the things that we did, number one, is looking globally and locally, but who could we partner with and who could we um, have join with us? And so our Center for Politics uh, called up and said, uh, how can we help? He, Larry Sabato said, I, I'm doing a conference call. I'd love to join in with you on that and talk about politics and the pandemic. And so we did a whole new platform. It was a calling in uh, conference, kind of like the old radio days. Uh, it was very successful. 1,800 people called in, many countries. And that became our first digital virtual event that was successful. And so after that, we decided to make a lofty goal of saying, you know, we are going to do about 50% less events but we are going to make that goal. And so for us, that was 150 events in three months. But we also decided we wanted to have a lofty goal that we were going to meet or exceed the number of registrations because we could in this virtual space. So and meet or exceed, so basically saying, we're going to shift digital, mm -hmm. reduce the number of events, so not do 1300, but, but have a new kind of metric um, adjusted for the calendar at half that but reach the same number of people or more or more which when you did the 1300 events how many unique attendees roughly might there have been well we had about 50,000 registrations for about 35 unique 35,000 and so we're looking at right now of having 15,000 registrations in a three-month period and I think one of the things that virtual, we looked at global and local. So we wanted big, large events that we could reach people in countries that we never reached before to have a global footprint. But the social interaction there, live Q&A, but the social interaction is not that great. And we really wanted the content to be meaningful, relevant, engaging. Um, and so we asked those questions. So we also wanted to have the happy hours. Um, we wanted to have uh, the virtual runs that someone talked about. So we're doing our first one on Saturday. We wanted to have faculty webinars and conversations and volunteer meetings. And so we were able to uh, pivot very quickly, um, but we didn't have the resources or the skills on our team. It was just, you know, it was like a startup organization again. I've been part of two startups and so we worked a lot of our team members work 24/7, learning well, you know, learning how to do a webinar, learning how to do something, and we wanted to make sure that we had the book clubs, um, we had the faculty speakers, we had the networking opportunities, uh, and that we had all types of different events, Facebook Live uh, meetings. But so we just basically took, you know, our our um, our foundational guiding principles and said, how can we do this in the digital space? And then the biggest, I think, um, help for us, we have a very strong alumni population that are volunteers and they helped in the very beginning. We had our very first meeting with them the first week in March 
and they helped guide and direct kind of the activities and act um, so it was very much volunteer driven as well um, and still then staff supported. I um, am so glad that you shared that and I think that this is an example I just have to ask when you think about running 1300 events getting 50,000 registrants and 35,000 unique alumni on a population of how many alumni? About 240,000. 240,000. So when you think about the, the budget required to do that versus the budget you now have allocated for this new virtual programming, I'm not gonna ask you your budget on events, but I am curious, just orders of magnitude, yeah. how much more efficient might you be in achieving the same goal, which is engaging and connecting alumni to the institution and one another, but I imagine at just a radically lower cost. Yeah, there is a cost on, uh, there is a cost to the digital space. And I think um, we need to make sure that that's part of what we're looking at. But yes, in-person events are expensive. Um, I think they hit that uh, social, that interaction. Yeah. Uh, in a much more deeper way. And we so, all need one of those right now. Okay, let's be honest. Like, yeah. a good so tailgate would go a long way right now. So yeah. don't, don't give up on that forever. No, but I think this um, expands and magnifies our outreach in ways that we didn't think were possible. Yeah. And so it's to go there. So that's why I don't think uh, virtual is going away, but I don't see in-person going away as well. I think University of Virginia is very much built on this residential community. I've worked here for 28 years and um, in-person events will still be a, a thing for the University of Virginia. Our community loves to gather as a family. Um, so that won't go away, but uh, digital virtual events are certainly more efficient and reach a much more global population. There is no yeah. question in my mind. Well, it'll be really interesting to see as you scale that work to look at the demographics as well. You know, I remember looking pretty early on in my uh, you work in the advancement space. Um, I think the folks at Brown shared with me basically a reunion attendance by, uh, by year. So like the fifth reunion through the roof, you know, 10th reunion, really good. 15th reunion, just a massive fall off because people have kids, they're navigating, you know, being young parents, and then it grows back up from there. So I'm worried, I'm, I'm wondering if they're, um, is going to be an opportunity to reach people and engage people who just literally can't go to an event or the happy hour that are going to be seeking this kind of um, this digital opportunity. And I think your exact your your point is well made. And the big thing that I would say, if if there was one thing that I'd encourage everyone to do when they're thinking about virtual events, is to figure out how to capture those registrations. So we made a commitment that we were going to still maintain a registration system so that we can look at that data. And I'll be very curious to look at how many brand new people that never have engaged with us in an in-person event, what percentage came out for the very first time in this digital space. Um, and we couldn't do that unless we had that information. Um, and so that would be my one big um, takeaway is that if you're doing webinars or virtual events, find a way to have people register so that you can capture those yeah. um, in, in our database and um, in our ever true systems, wherever yeah. we have, so we can follow up and see those trends. Well, I think um, that that's a, maybe a good segue just to kick it over to Julie for a minute. But uh, we've been we've been thinking a lot about that. Think about how many of those 1,300 alumni events, especially in a uh, you know decentralized sort of very volunteer driven context, 
where no matter how hard we beg alumni to take good registration lists at the door, um, there are just varying degrees of, of how well that gets done. And I do think there can be, um, even for our work, right? We have 188 people right now. We know who is here. And um, if we talk to 188 of you at a case conference, for sure, we'd be trying to get business cards and transcribe it and double check. And it's just so much harder when you're in that offline world to capture the data. Um, we've got really a neat opportunity, I think. Now, I'm, I'm curious, Julie, how much of your team has been thinking about, you know, is Zoom kind of the new chapter registration and how do we, um, you know, ensure that we're getting the data fed in so that it becomes actionable for both engagement scoring, but also prospect discovery and, and, and follow-up efforts? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I think it's something that we are continuing to learn about, right, as we, you know, are six weeks into this this remote journey. Now, as you know, at UVA, we've made um, big strides over the past couple of years with our technology ecosystem. So what we have is we have advanced as a database, but we also have um, other applications that don't necessarily connect with advanced. Some do, some don't, but we, we retain information in a, um, a data repository that we can report against. So um, we're not quite there yet in terms of, uh, you know, data from Zoom, but we are taking this, these registrations information from the team that Cindy has and, and importing it into our space and then reporting back out through Tableau, which is our, um, our reporting uh, uh, tool. Well, Julie, this wasn't meant to be a product roadmap discussion, but we probably should pick your brain on what that Zoom data integration might look like, because I do think, um, you know, for example, we've been working with Eventbrite as a partner where we had institutions using Eventbrite, but then struggling to get that data fed back into their, their database of record. We've done an integration to automatically do that. Um, your team has worked with Cvent, for example, and we've had some great conversations about Cvent. So there's been lots of work on the traditional offline event engagement systems. It could be iModules as well. But now we've got this whole virtual event ecosystem that sort of showed up overnight. And we're all going to, I think, as partners in, in the space, have to figure out not just the strategy to attract 1,800 people, but then how do we turn that into a real data asset going forward um, that's on us. That's on, you know, your team. We all will keep working. And I, I do want to um, just quickly kick it over to Jen, because I know that you've made um, significant investments in alumni career support, alumni career services. And um, even a couple of weeks ago, I had a, a you know, a kind of a little bit of a debate on LinkedIn where uh, some leaders in the field were questioning, is career support really where we should be placing our bets from an alumni engagement perspective. And, you know, we all have to make bets, right? I mean, for a long time, alumni travel has been a core revenue source and so forth. And, you know, that is going to be turned on its head, certainly for the foreseeable future. But as you think about something like career services, at a time when we are dealing with the, the greatest disruption in the history of the labor market um, and the most rapid increase in unemployment beyond, you know, anything anyone could have imagined, um, I, I would guess you're feeling confident in the investments that you've made, although at the same time, it's got to be a little bit overwhelming to think about how much um, pressure or support your alumni may need in the coming months. So I'd be curious to get your view on that, Jen. 
Yeah, sure. I'm happy to speak to that, Brent. Um, you're right that we have made a really significant investment in our alumni career services offerings over the last several years. And that was a direct result of the ask from alumni. Um, we did an all alumni survey uh, back when I first joined the Alumni Association, and this was a critical uh, need for continued investment for us. But we've done it in a way that's highly scalable and um, I chuckled a little bit with um, the poll when it says, is this new and here to stay or will it go away? Because digital has been, is an integral part of our strategy that we developed you know, two and a half years ago. Uh, and so as we began to make uh, significant investments in our alumni career services offerings, one of the early things that we did was build out a series of alumni professional networks. And those are, both industry-based and some are workplace-based, uh, depending on the size of the employer. Um, and they are intended to be virtual support networks that can connect um, and create engagement opportunities for alumni around career and professional development that didn't, doesn't necessarily require in-person support and in-person activities. We have augmented those with in-person support and in-person activities, but they are intended to uh, be existing in the digital space and continuing on in the digital space. And so we are seeing um, a lot of payoff with that investment now. One of the things that we've recently done is we've opened up those professional networks to our students uh, because one of the greatest concerns right now at the institution from uh, the perspective of the class of 2020 is job placement, of course. And we are already seeing students uh, have job offers rescinded, internships canceled, et cetera. And so welcoming the class of 2020 into those alumni professional networks now so they can begin to network, they can begin to um, identify potential opportunities either for unpaid internships or potential uh, career pathing when the uh, economy does begin to recover, we think is a tremendous step. We've also always had a strong commitment to one-on-one -on -one career counseling. We have several career counselors within our staff, and we've seen a significant uptick in those requests uh, for career counseling support. But and the, and the other investment that we've made is in significant partnerships with vendors to provide career service programming. So we have partnered with an, an organization called Mission Collaborative, which um, is largely focused on helping our alumni do reboots. So if you, let's say you were someone like me who was a professional and then went and had three children, if you had left the workforce, you could re-enter the workforce and Mission Collaborative would allow and provide support uh, for that. We're just finalizing a partnership with Coursera uh, to provide some pretty advanced um, certificates for our alumni and we're really excited about that. And um, our Alumni team, like lots of the our alumni career services teams, like lots of the other folks around grounds, are using uh, digital engagement platforms to create Q and A uh, for our alums. Uh, Amanda Panares, our career services director, um, just hosted a webinar yesterday and had fantastic turnout. And she briefed us this morning. They had over 200 questions um, on their on their uh, session. If I could, Brent, I'll, I'll share one other place where. Um, you know, the response to COVID-19 has really impacted sort of our digital approach. And that's um, with an effort that we are leading around celebrating the 
50th anniversary of full co-education at the University of Virginia. The 2020 marks the 50th anniversary and it also marks the 100th anniversary of women first coming to the university in the graduate schools. We are leading on an effort for a university-wide celebration of those two milestones and we're focused specifically on celebrating our alumni community. The principles that we were applying there um, were really focused on celebrating the diversity of the alumni experience and elevating alumni's contributions on and beyond grounds and expanding the collective understanding of UVA's history. Fortuitously, I think, we really focused on um, creating some incredibly powerful and visually compelling digital assets as we led up to the launch and that launch just happened this Tuesday. And while there is hopes for a really large in-person gathering of our alumni, having really robust uh, digital engagement opportunities is part of the plan and we've had a tremendous response rate um, to that offering. So Again, I think, you know, as, as Cindy mentioned, it's really quickly retooling uh, and shifting tactics, not necessarily changing at all your strategies, but shifting the tactics uh, to get to the desired outcomes. We just had a wonderful comment that, that really warms my heart. Laura uh, Terrio, I'm going to hopefully not butcher your last name too badly, but Laura is joining us from Cornell. She's a major gift associate. And she wrote that she can attest to the quality of the career counseling with the UVA Alumni Association. She's mm -hmm. a member of the class of, I believe, 1999, uh, and that she worked with a specific counselor who helped her relaunch her career into the advancement space. So that is so cool. Um, and I think it's the kind of thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, that is so cool. Thank you, um, Laura, for sharing that. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and I think it's the kind of thing that, you know, for me, further validates that, like, this is one of the areas where higher ed is uniquely positioned to support alumni throughout their life cycle. You know, there are a lot of things that are nice to have. This is one of those things that is a must have. It has been hard to administer historically. Uh, I do think digital platforms can help with that a lot, but I bet part of the challenge at a large, uh, you know, uh, organization, independent alumni association, obviously lots of collaboration, but how do you start, how do you educate an advancement organization on all of those offerings? Because there's a lot there that Jen just shared. And my, my biggest fear is that when, you know, let's say a student caller called me tonight and I said, hey, look, I just lost my job. That they say, hey, sorry to hear that. And then they hang up and then they call me back in a year. Instead of saying, I'm super sorry to hear that, we have an amazing one-on-one -on -one counseling program We've got a mission collaborative partnership that you should be aware of. We have continuing education certificates on Coursera. There are so many things we can do to help you get back on your feet that when it comes time to earn your gift again, I want it to be a no brainer for you. And you can have a conversation like that with a hundred dollar annual fund supporter that's trying to you know, restart their career. Um, but there are gonna be major planned principal giving prospects that have had their entire worlds turned upside down. How do you educate a frontline staff to know about the resources that Jen just shared and to be able to be that conduit to create a holistic one UVA donor experience? That is not easy, but I am curious, maybe Julie, start with you, what your reactions to that would be. Well, I mean, that's always the challenge. Um, 
in our business, especially at UVA, you know, one of the things that we do um, through the operations team is we put out a digital uh, newsletter every week. And that digital newsletter promotes the various things. Internal or external? Excuse me? Internal or external? And internal to our team, to our to our 500 advancement professionals, not only in the center, but across the community and our foundations and units. I mean, it's always um, our goal because as you said at the beginning of this, we're a highly distributed environment, um, kind of uh, providing central services requires a digital approach. So we've just taken that and focus a little bit more on today, right? The virtual visit. Well, virtual visit is, is, a, is a challenge. I mean, we saw the results uh, of your survey. Not everybody is primed for that. A lot of these fundraisers are person to person individuals. So this new territory of, of finding a way in to have a virtual visit and not ask and not, and not even allude to that sort of thing is changing. Some of the events that Cindy's doing, the events that Jen offers, we promote those um, in a weekly newsletter to our community as ideas, conversation starters for virtual visits um, and other offerings that are going on uh, within our community. So that's one thing that we do. We, we, we offer that digital uh, communication piece um, to, to tie it all together. Cindy, Friend, you, I think, go ahead, Jen. Oh, sorry, I was gonna say, I think in addition to what Julie mentioned, and I suspect uh, Cindy would probably say the same thing here, is that our communities of practice play a really important role here. Um, we have an engagement community of practice, an annual, um, giving community of practice amongst others. We have a planned giving community of practice. And those are led largely by some of our frontline folks. And um, that's where a lot of experience sharing is happen, happening. To your point, I think we can always do more. Um, the newsletters that Julie's team sends out are fantastic. And I think it's a great way for sharing the resources. And even there, there's limited real estate, right? You couldn't possibly capture, it's, right. you know, a snippet of, you know, the top five or something like that, which is wonderful. Um, but I think we have to rely on our staff to be really good ambassadors and, and with their partnerships. Um, and then also making sure that those resources are really avail readily available um, on our networks so that folks can find them easily. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, this is a challenge in any organization, right? It's like, we're a software company, you know, how do I ensure that, that all of my colleagues know about all of our products and features and the changes and can, you know, communicate those based on a, a given uh, customer prospects needs. And so I don't think this is a, a challenge that's unique to advancement. Um, but I am curious, Cindy, when you think about kind of the portfolio of services that you can offer to your constituent. Um, not in exchange for philanthropic support, but in hope to earn it, how do you make sure that, you know, the team knows about all of those, um, those offerings? Might have broke up a little bit there. Cindy, did you catch any of that? No, I, I lost it there. I had a, a, a leg okay. in the internet. I apologize. No, it's fine. All I was going to say is um, uh, when you think about ensuring that your team uh, is able to take all of those offerings that Jen described and integrate that into the the broader donor experience. How do you do that? That's got to be kind of overwhelming. Or even as you think about all of these digital events you're now scaling, how do you ensure that the right prospects not only get broad marketing invitations, but that a gift officer is able to say, you know, hey, Brent, I think you might really like this event. I'd love for you to join. Yeah, 
I think a couple of things. I think number one, not only your staff, but I think the best uh, word of mouth is from our alumni and students. And so part of it is making sure you have the training. We have 200 student workers that work in my office. And so we have an orientation with them to talk about all the different services that are available. Um, and our phonathon callers, uh, you know, the education uh, that we have for them to be able to answer those questions. I don't want them to hang up. I want to have an, this to be an engagement uh, conversation. So they're not necessarily judged on how many calls that they can do in an in a hour. They're judged on the quality of those interactions. The same thing with our alumni volunteers by providing them with the resources that they have, quick toolkits, uh, regular communication, really treating them as an extension of staff, as an insider. They then can provide that information and support. So I think part of it is just making sure that that's always top of mind, that we're always educating, that we're also um, just keeping that relevant. I think um, from our staffing side, I think the big thing is just letting people know what you're doing. I think, um, and, and helping them chart the course of how could this engagement activity, how can they find out if their donors are going? How can we give them the easy tools to be able to then say, gosh, um, I've got a prospect that loves garden and I didn't know that you had a virtual garden tool. So I think um, having a strategy for communication um, with our development officers is key as well. And we've implemented a weekly strategy for that alongside with Julie's team. Love it. Um, well, I, I want to be conscious of time and I um, want to make sure we have a chance to reserve some specific uh, time for Q&A. Uh, and we've got some really good questions that have come in. But I think that I might jump to the, uh, one of the questions is, uh, we're trying to reopen the advancement economy. We're doing that more digitally than ever before, both from a uh, event perspective. I think one of the takeaways for everyone is if you don't know how many offline versus online events did you have last year? How many registrations did you have? How many unique people did you engage? And what's your goal for this year? That's something we all should really think about. And so great job, you know, Cindy, on that front. But I am curious, when you think about what is happening today, we're talking a lot about what are the, the new things that we are doing more of? What are the things, Jen, that we were doing that we're now trying to double down on? But there's also this big question of what won't we do again? Mm -hmm. And are there things that you see that might never be the same? And I'm not saying you got to make a prediction for UVA specifically, um, but just when you think about your, your peers and what people are talking about and UVA, what might never come back? And I guess uh, I'll start, Cindy, with you. Yeah. Well, I think what we're being forced to do is develop some new processes and procedures. So one of the things that will never come back in our organization is a, a paper in-kind contribution form. We've now digitized that. It's now on DocuSign. We're going to increase the number of people who can make an in-kind donation because we have a much better system. I can't believe it took a pandemic for us to uh, say, gosh, someone wanted to get this credit and they filled out the form and then they were trying to scan it and fax it. Can you be a little bit more specific with the before and after? That's super interesting. And I wonder how many of our, of our panel or participants haven't yet moved there. What was the before and after? So one of the things that we have been very successful at is having our alumni and parents uh, donate um, goods and services as an in-kind contribution. And um, so that a lot of that was related to events. They would buy the food and, and want to give that back to the university. So our event expenses were covered by the local areas. 
And so as something that we could do for them back is to give them acknowledgement and have them fill out an in-kind contribution form. So we had that in a paper form and we would do probably less than 100 a year. I think now that we have figured out a way to do that in the digital realm through DocuSign, we can probably triple if not quadruple that number. And so that number Amazing. one shows- I mean, me people are buying, back. they're buying houses on their phone, they're buying cars on their phone, they're buying uh, stocks on their phone, and they're doing a multi-step paper form to be able to help out UVA. I mean, that's crazy, but I think that's an example where they, crazy. You know, where we are able to, uh, Diana Turner, I hope you don't mind me sharing Diana, but Diana wrote us and said, we still have a three-step paper form for Auburn. I am moving this idea forward. So nice work, Cindy. You just streamlined things for Auburn for decades to come. Um, and uh, we'll make sure that, uh, that Diana can follow up if there's more info. So Julie, I might kick it to you. What's something that has just always been a part of advancement, but might not be going forward? Any ideas yet? Anything come to mind or too early to say? You know, I don't want to make any predictions. I think that, you know, it's obvious that we've, we've touched some things, you know, socially and economically here that there's no going back from. So uh, are we going to have huge events? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it depends on the time of the year. Maybe it depends on the bug that's going around, right? So this is forever, this, our new behaviors is forever going to change this business. But I don't think it, can, it necessarily derails the business. I think we just need to find a different approach, which is always interesting to me, right? Um, one thing I know that I'll never buy another one of is a tower, a desktop computer. And, and fortunately, in Central Advancement, we had none. Um, when, we, uh, when we went home on the whatever day, the 11th or the 15th, 16th, whenever it was, we just snapped our fingers and everybody picked up their laptops and walked away because nope. we were prepared for that. You're the second person that has shared that. Chris Campbell, who runs uh, Advancement Strategy at Oklahoma State, shared the same yeah. thing. It was one of those just kind of obvious, you know, moments where even the thought of like how many people didn't have laptops right. and like how many advancement shops were scrambling or maybe still are to get people laptops or iPads or what have you. I mean, you know, those are the things that, um, that you really take for granted. And uh, it, yeah, I think, I think the days of that kind of computer uh, in the old office cube are, are gone. I think what's going to be interesting from from my standpoint is the emerging technologies, right? I mean, what what is what's next? We were in the market and looking at CRMs, and we still need to do that. We need to replace Elucian Advance at UVA, but what's next? And I think on the other side of this, not too far down the road, is the emergence of some very interesting technologies for the new world of advancement, whatever that may be. So I, I'm ready for that. I've got my, my eye out for that sort of thing, Brent. I'm ready for that too. And I have my eye out for it as well. Uh, Jen, so what are we never going to do again? Any thoughts? Well, I was thinking about our custom scholarships. So we give out about $2 million at the Alumni Association around the custom scholarships. And I think something that we'll never do again is absolutely require a student to come to the university to interview for those um, custom scholarships. A number of those have selection panels that are run by volunteers. And we have successfully transitioned all of those custom scholarships to Zoom interviews. And there was a great testament. I have the chair of the board of managers for the Alumni Association also happens to chair one of these scholarships. And he was 
very, very hesitant about doing the scholar selection using Zoom. And uh, one of our staff members, Molly Bass, who's incredible and does all of our scholarship and endowment uh, stewardship and support, spent a pretty significant amount of time getting him comfortable with the technology and making sure the waiting rooms, et cetera, were set up. And he reported out at our board meeting last Friday that it was the most rewarding and successful scholar selection process that they had ever had. Um, I don't think that Zoom will ever make up for in-person interviews and in-person touch. And to the extent where we have the ability to have students here, I think that's where we will default. But it creates a lot of opportunity and, 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 and creates more equitability um, for students um, who are uh, finalists to be able to more, you know, more effectively compete for those dollars. And so that's something I, I think will go away. It's a small yeah. thing. When you essentially have this global um, adoption of this technology, and we have others that are using Microsoft Teams or Google, we did do a survey on, on one of these, um, actually in our product, we had several thousand people respond and 80% of advancement shops are using Zoom for whatever it's worth. And um, and I think the, the benefit, not only for internal team communication, but it's really when your entire constituency is embracing it, you know, when you have friends that are doing happy hours with, you know, with, I mean, my, my, uh, business school section just did a Zoom catch-up. We haven't done that ever. Zoom's been around for, you know, many, many years. We could have done that two, three, four, five years ago. There were zero technical constraints, but it's now been this behavior change uh, that, that I think is going to enable uh, the kind of experience that you just described that um, that will just become acceptable and normal and really fulfilling for people. And, and that's the exciting part. I mean, we have heard some amazing examples of, uh, college presidents just dropping into classes that are now on yeah. Zoom. They can't do that if they had to run around a large campus or grounds to get place to place. They could do yeah. 10 of those in 10 minutes now if there's the right coordination. That is so neat. We've heard of examples of major gift officers who are inviting coaches to join them for solicitation conversations who never could have been traveling during the spring athletic season who now are able to be one of the floating heads in the Brady Bunch, you know, box that we have here. And as a donor, being able to talk to the head coach or talk to assistant coaches who otherwise never could have been there can actually maybe make the experience even better than what the in-person could be. Not always, but sometimes. So um, I guess the, the final thing, you know, just quickly, Cindy, this idea of uh, restarting fundraising, you know, really – recognizing that while we need to pause and be sensitive and always lead with how are you doing from a you know donor engagement perspective we also are facing more acute need for philanthropic support to fund gaps that are yet unknown around enrollment and retention that every university is trying to forecast so there is this balance of how do we be sensitive to a donor with how do we make the case that we need you more acutely than ever and so if now isn't the right time here, all the services Jen and others are offering, but if it might be the right time, we still need your support. Absolutely. So we did pause all of our annual giving solicitations, um, except for our COVID-19 responses for students, for healthcare, and for employees. And one of the interesting things that happened, um, especially with the COVID-19 support for students, was that our local alumni clubs actually got on the bandwagon and did peer-to-peer -peer solicitation at the very beginning. So it wasn't coming from the university, it was coming from uh, their peers, and that was a very successful campaign that kind of started up that jumpstart.
We have made the decision not to do our 24-hour giving day, and primarily because our giving day in the past had been very much spirited, rah-rah. It was kind of a competition, and um, we just felt the tone um, for our institution. Now, for some institutions, the giving day might be absolutely the way to go, and I think that's where you have to go and look at each institution and, and um, what works there. We are gonna start fundraising again, both um, email digitally and direct mail. Our first direct mail piece will go out the first week in May, and that will be from our nursing school to celebrate the nurses, to celebrate nursing, um, the nursing uh, week, um, that, which is the beginning of May. But I can tell you that we're re-looking at the uh, appeal and it's going to be a little bit more soft sell. Um, it's going to be apathetic. It's going to be, how can we help? We're there with you. But also talking a little bit more about the impact of the needs that we have and how they can happen. So one of the interesting things we've seen, um, our president's mailing uh, actually went out uh, uh, the week uh, right before we closed down shop. And we're still getting gifts from people. And so our number of donors are actually almost right on par with that campaign from the last month. Our dollars are a little bit short, mm -hmm. um, but we still have people who are saying, you know, I do want to give $50 to support the School of Nursing or $50 to support our students who are traveling um, a home or having different financial needs. So we are reopening, um, but it's, a, it's looking at it um, being empathetic um, it's going to be a softer ask, and it's going to be coordinated in our decentralized fashion. Super helpful, uh, and I think, um, you know, that balance of, you know, sensitivity and empathy is, is key. Um, I love the idea of, of kind of going back around the nursing theme, right, so timely and topical. Everybody listening, if you don't have a list of all the nurses in your community yet, probably a list that you should start thinking about, and it's hard to imagine um, any donor really reacting negatively, uh, you know, to to a topic like that. A, a good way to test the water. Um, I would actually welcome uh, a, another response in the chat group. There was a question from, uh, actually, I think that went out. Yeah, Becky uh, had asked Mike Nagel if um, folks were going to participate on this new kind of May 5th day of giving. It's sort of like Giving Tuesday, um, sort of two, uh, you know, in light of this. So I don't know if you've given that any thoughts, Cindy, or if that aligns with that, that nursing week or. Yeah, we, we have decided not to participate in Giving Tuesday now. One of um, our university's uh, strong connections is with our local community and with the many local nonprofits in Charlottesville and around. And, and so our take was just let this day be uh, for our local nonprofits and our human services community and let's step aside and not participate in giving to Who's Day Now. Um, and so we are not gonna participate in that program as a university. Again, every university is unique in their culture and their approach. Um, uh, and so I know a lot of universities are going to take advantage and to um, have that, that um, platform, but uh, the University of Virginia is not going to be participating and supporting other nonprofits in that effort. Thank you for that perspective. We had a really interesting question come in from Elizabeth at Case Western Reserve University, and this can maybe be our, our, our closing thought because I think um, or, or at least closing comments from, from each of you. Uh, Elizabeth wrote, my team's worried about virtual event overload for our supporters. Our donors support many other organizations. We know most nonprofits are moving things online and will continue to do, continue to do so. 
how do we prepare for this possibility and potential virtual exhaustion, which uh, I was totally feeling after all my Zoom calls last week. I'm feeling great right now, but we've all felt that virtual exhaustion. And older donors who are not comfortable using Zoom, we have older alumni who've asked us to postpone their 50th and 55th class reunions from fall 2020 to fall 2021, as opposed to reducing it to an online event in their words. So any comments on that? I think both broadly, virtual exhaustion, how do we stand out from the noise? And then second, you know, strategies around specific demographics um, who maybe are still trying to figure out this Zoom economy, if you will. I might start with you. Jen, go to Julie, go to Cindy, and then we'll close it down from there. Sure. I'll start with the second part of your question first, because we, we've made a decision directly related. Um, we actually did make the decision to postpone our class-based reunions to next spring instead of just moving them to a virtual uh, event. And that was done with uh, significant input from the alumni volunteers who lead those. Uh, our reunions program is one of our signature offerings. We bring back over um, 10,000 alumni to the grounds each year um, across our reunions programs, young alumni reunion and our class-based reunions. And it's just a really important part. As Cindy said, there is something about um, place, UVA and the space in the place. It, it has a very important meaning in, in, to our alumni. And so we did make that decision and it seemed, it, and I would just say that was a very challenging one because it's, it creates tremendous logistical challenges for us. Uh, we have a lot of space limitations. And so we had to make that decision with a lot of imperfect information uh, because we needed to communicate it to our alumni now. And the team here is, you know, rising to the challenge of how are we really going to rethink and reinvent the reunions program for next spring. And, and again, this is all assuming that public health will allow uh, large uh, group gatherings at that point in time. But it will, it's forcing us to get really creative and rethink that program um, because we simply can't just double the number of attendees and do what we've always done. And so there's a lot of learning and growth for the, the team. And one, I'm in, oh, would, sorry, go ahead, one comment would be do both. You know, yeah. who knows, maybe they aren't embracing Zoom Maybe they are, and why not do? Hey, today was supposed to be our day. We're sending around a Zoom link. Click the link. Yeah. Give them a shot, and and if they really can't figure it out, but I bet their grandkids, their kids, you know, other people are encouraging them to do the same thing. So uh, they have iPhones, they have iPads, or, or whatever the device may be. Uh, give them a chance. Maybe you do both. My tenth business school reunion was just postponed. I think canceled actually. Um, I want to do that. You know, I hope that there'd be some yeah. kind of facilitated alternative, even though it's not exactly the same. I want to be sensitive of time. So I might need to kick it to Julie here uh, quickly. Yeah. And very quickly because of, I'm not the expert in this, but my thoughts are meet them where they are. Right. I mean, right. as a support person, uh, I agree with you, Brent. I think you don't have to, it's not one or the other, it's both. Um, and I think this will all unfold as time goes on here. And by the um, way, and there might be members of the 50th or 55th who can't travel who could join right. remotely and who actually might find that incredibly fulfilling. So I think now is the time to test that kind of thing. That's right. That's Indeed. right. 
I think I would just look at the programming. What can the university where you are offer that is meaningful, different, and unique that only you can provide? Number one, yeah. make that unique experience. And then number two, diversify your platform. So um, have, um, have uh, programs. We have our, our most successful program is a conference call. But last night, uh, we have a strong travel program. And so last night, I picked up the phone and talked to two former travelers. So I think that um, the key to... Uh, Fatigue is just like with events. It's diversification of content and platform. Love it. Um, thank you all so much for sharing. We are including um, contact information. If anybody has specific follow-up, um, it is just so great to be able to uh, have an open conversation and learn from each other. And, and uh, this was terrific. We were really looking forward to it. Participants, hope you enjoyed it. Um, without further ado, I would like to thank Jen, uh, Julie, Cindy, uh, and on behalf of my colleague Mike and the Evertrue team, we will do our best to keep uh, trying to facilitate conversations like this in this new virtual world. Cheers, everybody. Take care. Have a good one. Thanks for having us. Bye.